Hello and welcome to BioEpic, the podcast where we delve into the lives of fascinating people and their impact on our world through our collection of 90,000 biographies in our special collection of biographies at Kensington Central Library. I'm Claudia Jessup from Kensington Central and I'm here with my friend and colleague Emma Marsh. We're very excited today because we're going to be speaking about one of the giants of British popular culture in the 20th century, the really unique and multi-talented actor and comedian Kenneth Williams. And as our guest today, we have Adam Endicott, who we're very pleased to welcome with us because as well as being communications director and archivist of the Chartered Institute of Architectural Technologists, um, Adam has done something truly remarkable related to Kenneth Williams, which is that he's written the book, The Kenneth Williams Companion, published by Phantom in 2018. And this is just an absolutely remarkable book. It's almost 700 pages in which Adam has detailed every single piece of work that Kenneth Williams ever did, which we'll hear soon is, is a really diverse and, uh, and huge body of work. And he's also interspersed that with fascinating memories um, of people that knew Kenneth Williams and um, things that, that Williams wrote himself about a particular piece of work that he did. So it really is an absolutely incredible book. Um, so we're very happy to have you with us, Adam. Hello. Hello. Thank you. And what an honour it is for you to have me here. Oh, well, as Kenneth would say. That's great. Well, before we start talking more about, about Kenneth Williams and about how you came to write this book, would you mind just giving us a sort of very quick whirlwind um, summary of his, his life and work for those who might not be familiar with him? I, I shall try. So Kenneth was many things. He was a comedic and dramatic actor, a film star, a broadcaster, a director, an author, a writer and diarist, a raconteur, and ultimately a recognisable personality. So born in 1926, his first real acting opportunities happened at the end of the war uh, for combined service entertainment. And from there, came back to the UK, moved into repertory theatre. Mm -hmm. And his first real break came in St. Joan in 1954, when he played the dual role of the Dauphin and King Charles VII. Um, he was spotted by Dennis Main Wilson, who uh, recognised his talent. And so he was put into a new radio programme called Hancock's Half Hour. Oh, and, yes. and from there, um, he he carried on. So, excuse the pun. Um, so he did <laughs> things such as Beyond Our Ken in the theatre. He was in reviews such as Share My Letters and Peace of Eight. Uh, was in the very first Carry On film, Carry On Sergeant, 1958 and appeared in 26 of those right up to 1978. Um, did numerous things in the theatre, such as The Private Ear and The Public Eye and Lute. Um, back on the radio, he did Round the Horn. On the TV, he was well known for hosting International Cabaret and um, Jack and Ori. And then back on the radio, there was Just a Minute, from which he was on there for a good 20 years as a, as a stalwart. Oh, and yes. then he also did the voices for Wood of the Wisp, uh, and ending his career um, on Countdown as a, as a chat show host on Wogan uh, and ultimately also directing on the stage. 
and um, he would die in 1988. Thank you. That's that's fantastic, Adam. And it, gosh, it brings back, you know, all the things that, that, that I can remember seeing him in and hearing him in. Yeah. So, uh, Adam, is how, how, when did this interest start in Kenneth Williams? Oh, he's always, I'm oh, sorry. Yeah. He's, he's always been a hero of mine. And his career has always been something that I thought should be documented as there were quite a few books that were always out, mm. but never had um, a detailed chronology of his career or anything such as that. So that really spurred me on to do my own research and put this together. Yeah, and um, what was it like, um, you know, writing the book and how, how long did it take you to do such a such a long, a long, long project on Kenneth? It was really the research that uh, took the time. Uh, I, I, I wanted to listen to and, and watch everything that was available out there. Mm. So that took a good five years plus and then after that it was then actually writing it all and and, and curating it and speaking to people who had worked with him to include their memories so in all it was a, it's been a project that was a good 10 years i, I suppose really in, in total Gosh, that is really um that's dedication isn't it that's remarkable yeah, it's a real work of passion for me. Definitely. And uh, um, I mean, Kenneth, what he was, he was, he was very versatile. What, which of his work do you think his um, meant the most, most to you? Um, and what do you think he, Kenneth Williams, was most proud of his that he did, his work? So, so for Kenneth himself, he always said it was the radio. Because mm. he could just walk into the studio, sit or stand, and just uh, read through the script, do his thing, didn't mm. have to put any makeup on or or think about it. He could just essentially do it and then go home. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Because he he found things such as theatre quite trying, um, having to go on every night and keeping it fresh. Yes, I can imagine that. Yes. And yes. so for me, I think. It's, for, it's quite difficult to pin down mm. his greatest work. I mean, because he was so comfortable on on the radio and and through all the other mediums as well. But um, my particular favourite performance, I said, had probably been Carry On Spying as Desmond Simpkins, which he really takes hold of the film as, as and is really the star of it. And throughout is his snide persona. <laughs> so, it's, so it's nice just to have that as an actual yes. capture of, of, of that character as well. Um, and was there any of the other carry-on cast, established cast in, in that with him? It was uh, Bob Windsor's very first one. Mm. There was Charles Hawtray. Oh, yes. Who had been the first as well. Mm. Uh, Bernard Cribbins was a newcomer. And there was the usual sort of stalwarts as well, such as Eric Barker. Oh, um, yes. And the yes. first one as well. Um, 
that's fantastic um and you 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 were saying adam about his um you know his work on radio and of course um you know his voice is is just so incredible so recognizable but so uh incredibly versatile and and the range and the the different characters that he could do was was wonderful um and of course i wanted to ask about you know one of the the things he's most remembered for is in round the horn when he did the julian and sandy um routine um and, and perhaps you can give us in a minute the exact sort of dates of when that was i'm not sure exactly when that was but um it was obviously you know it's shocking to think that early on in his career um they, we still have these horrific laws um which criminalized um gay sexuality and and i wanted to ask what you think his significance was for the gay community and things like julian and sandy where you know, there was, it was sort of hiding in plain sight in terms of lots of innuendo and lots of um, Polari that was, that was put in there and things. And, and um, I just wondered whether you felt that he was a liberating figure um, for the gay community at that time, because, because people could sort of recognise things if they were in the know, which perhaps some other people might, might uh, have gone over their heads, as it were. What, what, what do you think about that? Well, just, just to answer your first part, uh, Round the Horn was 1965 till 68. Right. Um, so I, I think Kenneth was a, a leading figure openly performing in a camp manner, but whilst not overtly demonstrating his own sexuality. And I think yeah. like so a person should not be discriminated for their sexuality or have to express themselves for it. Of course, but yeah. He inspired others to be comfortable and embrace their sexuality as he did with me. So whilst it was stereotyping in some way, it was a positive image and a fun one, which allowed a mainstream audience to digest and respect the LGBT plus community in yeah. a period that yeah. saw direct discrimination. Absolutely. So yes, yeah. rating and is referenced to this day. And he would even offer advice to those who wrote to him with personal dilemmas and he would meet with several of them. Mm -hmm. um, he was a campaigner and felt strongly about such issues. Yeah. Hmm. I personally feel it is a great shame that he did not grow up in a safer environment, though. Mm. We have come a long way and there is still work to be done. Of but course. He had, to, yeah. he had to repress his own desires as the law and religion played a factor in his outlook. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I think, yes, obviously, well, as you say, there are still battles to be to be fought, definitely. But I think for the people of that generation, there were very particular sort of horrors, really, weren't there? Yes. Absolutely. And though he could use his work and talent to further equality in some way. So I think yeah. that was an inspiration. Oh, yeah. Yes. I mean, as as far as we know, he didn't have a, a significant other in his life. But he, he did have some long, some long loyal friendships with some very interesting people, such as um, Maggie Smith, Sheila Hancock and Joe Orton. Um, can you tell us a bit about those relations, those friendships he had? Yes, absolutely. He kept his friends all separate throughout his life. Mm. So you could sort of imagine that they were all kept in different rooms as, as a way of seeing it. So they never actually all met each other at the same time. Mm. And they actually only all met each other at his funeral. So, mm. I mean, along with those, yeah. those characters, there was also Stanley Baxter, Gordon Jackson and Barbara Windsor. 
So with 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 people like Maggie Smith and Sheila Hancock and Bar Windsor, because they were such strong um, characters that yes. stood up to him, yeah. I think I think he he liked that um, in the sort of the sort of the gay diva worship way, um, yeah. and he really I think there's also probably a, a positive attraction there as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then with Joe Alton, I think that friendship definitely allowed him to explore another side uh, and to express himself more um, in terms of his own feelings. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So I um, think they were all people who could help and nurture him in different ways and yes. of course essentially be strong friends for him to turn to at times of need. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it He's a fascinating character, isn't he? In the sense that, I mean, obviously he—he, he, as I said at the beginning of this of this talk, um, you know, he was a huge figure in popular culture in this country. He was, you know, in his sort of prime, he was recognisable, obviously, by so many people for doing so many uh, things. And he, but he, do you ever think that there was a tension? that he would have liked to have done more, quotes, kind of high culture than he did, because he was an extremely erudite man, wasn't he? I mean, he was self-educated. He came from relatively humble beginnings um, and he didn't have the opportunity for higher education. Um, But he was obviously extremely well-read, extremely intelligent and very interested in in what we might term sort of high, high art and everything. So I wanted to ask, did... For all his success in very popular things, do you think he ever felt that he would have wanted to do slightly more of the of the more um, the more high culture stuff to, to turn that phrase? Well, to quote the band himself, he was a cult in his own lifetime. But yeah. um, I think he started off definitely um, playing the classics um, as they're known, and appearing in some Shakespeare and 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 that ilk. Um, so I think he then sort of found himself into comedy through through Hancock's Half Hour, and I think because it was something that he enjoyed and it became an easy thing for him, he probably stayed there and he thought he was comfortable. So I think he probably would have liked to have dipped further into the classical world. Yes. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, he did have the offer from Orson Welles to go to America and, and do a Shakespeare on TV, but... He sort of, I'll use the word chicken out of it, but that's probably not the right word. Um, but I, I do think that possibly nearer the end of his life, he was probably did regret that he didn't do more as he was seen as that man on the chat show circuit sort of thing. So yes. it would have been nice if he had done, I mean, if there had been things like Alan Bennett's Talking Heads and... Oh, that would have been absolutely, yes. Yeah, those sort of opportunities have been there for him, I think, could have been quite different. Yeah, yeah. been yeah. I mean, he he did so many Carry On films. I mean, do you do you think he in the end he, he resented, um, you know, doing so many or regretted in it? Re- regretted it. That's an interesting one because it's it's sort of a love hate relationship, I think, because as you see the extracts from the diaries, he when he sees them later on in life, saying how poor they are or how or what load of old rubbish. Mm. Uh, I mean. Going to actually make them was like uh, going to another repertory company or, or being to an extended family. So it's yeah. just like, say, going back to school for them. So in terms of that, there was 
that family feel that he goes and see his friends and and yes and, and out the film. Uh, so his his favourite one of them of all he normally said was Carry On Cowboy. Oh really? Um, <laughs> but in terms of, so say there seems to be a sort of a love hate relationship with them, but give the public what they want, and it then it paid and it paid for certain things. So yes, of course, yes. Of course. I mean, my favourite one was um, Carry On Screaming. Oh yes, absolutely. <laughs> I, 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 I mean, I, I saw it when I was quite, you know probably about eight or nine and mm-hmm. I just remember the frying tonight I just thought that was <laughs> hilarious and I suppose it just stuck in my mind but, um, yes and, and and he is still so funny I mean I think he you know sometimes when you listen back to people from from decades ago you know that they're not funny anymore you can sort of you can appreciate the cleverness perhaps or uh the originality at the time but but he still is just really really makes you laugh still so um and I mean just to get back to that thing with his incredible voice um because I think you know each generation has their different things that they particularly associate him with and I think for people of, of mine and Emma's vintage I'm not quite sure about you Adam but we're, we're sort of Emma I hope you don't mind me saying this we're yeah, sort no, of no, early no. 50s aren't we and um, you know I remember him very vividly from the children's the work for children that he did so Willow the Wisp and Jack and Ori and things and um and of course, you know, his many years on Just a Minute as well. But um, I was amazed to learn that with um, with Willow the Wisp, for example, he did all the voices of all the characters, but he recorded them all in one take sort of thing. Is, is, is that right, Adam? That's right. So he would have to mark up the script with um, how he would describe the characters. So mm-hmm. Mavis was light, I believe, so very high up mm-hmm. and, um i think he and, and arthur was deep and then um evil edna was just nasty so, <laughs> and so he was having to go up and down the scales oh. which voice and then working that to the to the cartoon so it's all highly skillful and then he would do that again even more so with uh recording the will of the whiz single oh gosh I, yes Having to do that to music, so yes, very uh, challenging, and and just demonstrates how talented he was, and uh, could just do that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, it's quite remarkable, especially with all the voices in Jack and Nora as well. For Mm. for example, the Norman Hunter stories. Oh yes, oh I remember those. Yes, it's coming back to me. Yes. Things like the Dribblesome Tea Tots and all that. So mm-hmm. having to do the different voices for the councillors and the king and the queen. Oh, yes. <laughs> so, yeah. sorry, Emma, yes. No, I was about to say, so he, you know, he, we know uh, about the, his diaries. Um, uh, and um, they, they, were, they were published after his death. Um, what... What do you think the impact was of his diaries um, had uh, on how he was perceived as as a person? I think before answering, I think it's very important to remember that it's only about fifteen or ten percent of the actual diaries that have been published. So mm-hmm. everyone's basing their opinion on 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 mm. extracts that is out of 
a whole wealth of material that he wrote. And so you're you're seeing the more, I'll say, darker side and also the more opinionated side. So your your people are, are just seeing that and therefore they're making their own opinions. Oh, he oh he didn't like Sir James and oh he was gonna commit suicide that day and the next day and the next day after that. Um, whereas that's not necessarily true because uh, because he was a happy person as well so yes, I think yes. It, it, it's important to balance the two out it's uh, yeah. it's unfortunate that the way that he's portrayed in the diaries is is a lonely sad depressed mm-hmm. man whereas mm-hmm. it wasn't like that in reality it was all i mean people had their bad days and yes and the things um, such as that but um it is what it is, and, and and they're also fascinating to read what what is in there anyway. But uh, it's just unfortunate that there's not more brighter things to balance out. Mm. The more, and, and that's something that fascinates me is that he and that he wrote uh, in different styles of writing in his diary, in, in different handwriting styles. That's right, and in different colours as well. So colours, um, <laughs> depending on his mood and and if he was. Yeah. Um, chronicling his bowel movements and things like that. Oh, right. So obviously very detailed. Um, and um, he also he wrote some books himself, didn't he? Could could you tell us a bit about those? He did. The very first one was Acid Drops, uh, which is a collection of anecdotes, uh, which which he was well known for uh-huh. telling on just a minute and and, and chat shows. And he worked on that with, with Giles Brandreth, who was his ghostwriter. Oh, yes. And, and on the success of that, a few years later came Backdrops, uh, which was um, a selection of extracts from his diary of about 82, 83. Mm-hmm. And then along came the autobiography in 85 with Just Williams, which, which takes it from birth through to 1975. And then in '96, he wrote a children's book called I "Only Had to Close My Eyes." Oh yes, which is a which is a um, a poem of about a child and when he closes his eyes and what he dreams about, mm-hmm. uh, which is a lovely little oh, lovely little book and quite hard to find nowadays. But I'm right. sure you have it in the library. Um, <laughs> I'll have to have a look. But it's quite yes. <laughs> And then there was talk of a, of a follow-up autobiography as well around the time of his death, but of course it never happened. No. But um, and, he, he, and he also wrote, sorry, the, um, reviews for the Radio Times as well. Uh-huh. Right. Oh, right. And, and often yeah. do journalist-type pieces for The Spectator and things like that. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. And, and he, he did appear on chat shows, didn't he? Um, just Very much so. Towards the end of the career, his career, between um, who do you think got the best interview out of him? Was it Parkinson or Wogan? Well, personally, for me, having watched them all and seeing how comfortable he is and and, and what they talk about, I, I think uh, it's actually Mavis Nicholson who stands out for me in, in the way that um, she interviews him, and she was even invited around to his flat, which was uh, quite a rarity. So I think the way that they that they gel together is really good. Um, and that's a connection. Absolutely, and I think the woven ones are really nice as well because Terry was able to 
get the best out of people whilst sort of mm. having a bit of a banter as well. So it was it was a good mixture. And of course, you've got the legendary Parky as well. Yes. 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 And, um, and he was just the, the most wonderful guest to have, wasn't he? <laughs> because it was so entertaining. I mean, every every he was incapable of telling anything in a in a dull way, wasn't he? He was just sort of yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> I think on I think it was the last Parkinson he did. He just sat down and just spoke, and 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 Park actually says, oh, I, haven't, "I haven't asked you a question yet." <laughs> <laughs> right. Just, oh, and and. Thinking about him now at the distance of, you know, obviously he, he has been dead quite a number of years now. And I mean, what do you think is his most important legacy, his sort of lasting impact on, on the British cultural scene? Um, Adam, if, if you can think of people perhaps that he's influenced or just generally what, what's the most lasting impact that he had? Well, I think it's very much having the ability to make people laugh to entertain mm. and 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 just to make people feel good i mean he has spanned generations through the different work that he's done so people who grew up with hancock or around the horn mm. and that was repackaged and and repeated um through different mediums and that that's just people are just picking it up again on things like radio 4 extra you've got the children's side of things so people mm. who remember jack and nora and then they repeat the jack and nora and will of the wisp that's continually repeated and you can get copies of that so i think he's he's last of the generations and i think it's just because of his talent um that everybody still loves and adores him and can watch something and still love. I mean, it is yeah. it's timeless. Yeah. And he had an influence on people such as Dame Maggie Smith. I mean, if you watch Downton Abbey, there's Kenneth there and, and a lot of the scenes she's in with the reactions and the comic timing. Yeah, so definitely. <laughs> <laughs> and, and when you were doing all this research, Adam, did you, did you find anything about, out about, about him that surprised you? Oh, and yeah, there's some very random things that he was asked to do, such as go on TVM and talk about the 40th anniversary of Hiroshima and things such as that. So it just shows you his wealth of knowledge and how yeah. he was respected by mm. producers and asked to do such different things. I mean, there were some very um, random adverts he did as well. You wouldn't you wouldn't think that he'd dress up as that Dracula to do uh, Fred <laughs> Green Cake adverts. Do you remember that very well? Yes, naughty but nice. Remember <laughs> that. So it was a, it's a, such a varied career, and I also think I think that through the diaries going back to the other question, it was as though he was didn't have much work on, and so he was struggling. Whereas actually, when you look at everything, there were not many days that he wasn't working actually and if he ever went home but yes, uh, yeah. yes. And I, I wanted to ask you Adam um 
you know, obviously you've done this incredible piece of work and it's it must have been a bit, I imagine, although extremely hard work, but it must have also been a bit like sort of opening up a treasure chest of just finding all of this stuff. Um, but I wondered if there was any pieces of work that you that you know that he did, but where no trace has survived, where there's no recording that you could find and you weren't able to watch or listen to it. What, what would be the thing that you would really, you know, absolutely give a, a lot to to be able to find but you just you just can't find it i think the biggest thing that intrigues me is the possible recording of moby dick rehearsed oh, uh, right. which he did on stage with orson wells in 1954 uh-huh and uh, along with the cast there was joan Plow, young joan plowright there was oh, yes. Gowan, gordon jackson peter salas of last of summer wine fame and also christopher lee Oh um, gosh, that would be yeah, be amazing to find. Yes, but but there just is no recording of that, presumably. Well, the thing is, they they say that they started recording at the Hackney Empire. Right. So something did something was filmed, um, but it's a bit of a mystery now with the Wells Estate and whether there is something that actually exists or whether it wasn't actually ever filmed or yeah, or it's or it's somewhere in the in the depths of the vaults. I don't know, but that would be great to see. Maybe it'll turn up in somebody's attic one day, perhaps. You never know. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. Early TV stuff as well that be hopefully will turn up one day. I mean, early early sitcom appearances. And, I mean, the, the second series of Hancock's Half Hour, only one episode has survived. So if, if, if that ever came to fruition, that'd be, that'd be great as well. Oh, let's just, let's just hope that that might happen at some point. <laughs> And uh, I mean, one of the wonderful things about your book um, is that there it's interspersed with with memories of him um, recounted by people who knew him personally. And I know you yourself spoke to a, a large number of people who'd known him. And I just wondered, um, what was the most interesting conversation or indeed the most surprising conversation that you had with with any of those people? I think that none of them were overly surprising in terms of what I was expecting them to say mm-hmm. I, think, I think the general um, gist from them all is that there was a fun and happy side to Kenneth and also a very caring one as well so that really was nice to hear from from fellow colleagues and friends and that that really um, was good to discover that it wasn't all doom and gloom so I think that was really good I mean somebody like Ned Newman was able to they that off stage he was naughty and <laughs> just try and be as shocking as possible. And then once the cameras are rolling, he was that different person. He was being outrageous, and and it's it's just lovely to hear firsthand from from people who actually worked with him and yes. how much of a joy he was. And and do, do you think that he, you know, with all those sort of amazingly different different voices, different characters, different, and, you know, his face and his voice just change completely um, when he does these different characters. Um, but do you think there was a sort of a, a, there was a Kenneth Williams within all that, that that, that close friends got to know, that was, uh, you know, somehow beyond all of that, that was, as it were, it sounds a bit cliche, but, you know, the real Kenneth Williams. Do you think that that people got to know that? I think it was a bit of a mixture of both, really. Um, again, it's depending what sort of mood he was in the day. So you could have a very outrageous Kenneth in a restaurant yeah. and then have a very outrageous Kenneth on just a minute, depending on, on on what was the vibe of 
in the in the parish Jew devils that day. So mm. I think it's it's quite difficult to pinpoint, but then again you could have a very serious conversation with him about I don't know, Karl Marx or something like that, uh, and then have a really in-depth conversation and talk about theories and all that kind of um, talk. And, yes. uh, and then he could just go off and then walk down the street and yeah. ignore people and, and go home and write in his diary, and, or the next day he could just go straight into the studio and, and be outraged again, so... And, and he very much, um, although he, you know, he obviously sort of mixed with people from all, all sorts of walks of life, but he he was very honest and connected to his own origins, wasn't he? He, he never tried to sort of um, imply that he that his origins were, were anything other than they were, um, which was, you know, working class family in, in North London. Um, can, can you just, before we sort of we, we'll wrap up, you know, soonish, but just to say about the early part of his life, you know, what do you think that it, that was like and, and you know, what made him, or if you can trace that, what made him interested in, in the sort of career that he chose? Well, he was born uh, just off the Caledonian Road. And then the family moved to Bloomsbury, which is where he pretty much stayed for the rest of his life or around that area. Mm. Uh, his mother was someone he was very close to. And then there was probably a bit more than a, a mother-son relationship. It was very much a sort of a best friend, uh, yes. sort of a gossipy kind of um, fun relationship as well. Mm -hmm. um, there was his stepsister. Pat, who uh, they had a very good relationship together. Uh, it was possibly the relationship with his father wasn't so strong as as he was a hairdresser and wanted his son to be sort of the person, the butch person to have put on a pair of boxing gloves and things like that. Yeah, see, he doesn't sound as though he was he was particularly sensitive to to you know uh, wouldn't have been to to Kenneth Williams's yeah. aspirations to to act and everything. That's it, but he would always reflect and, and use the stories and, and use the accents and the and the personas for his future work and he'd take great joy out of talking about the customers in the hairdressers or uh, what, what his mother had been up to and, and that would come out on chat shows and, and, and talk shows and, and then he would revisit again in, in a program called Comic Roots which is quite a, a favourite amongst fans. Uh, yes, and uh, where he revisited his childhood homes and school, mm. um, which is a nice piece as well to have um, in the archive. Fantastic, yeah. yeah and, and talking of archive, I mean, have do you have a do you have you a big collection of Kenneth Williams um, and Ophelia, and uh, are you thinking of writing another book about him? Yeah, so I, I'm, I'm very proud of my collection. So I've been collecting since 1988 and mm. uh, have a mixture of everything from photos to programmes to posters to letters. So that's um, that was also very helpful for the research. Yes. And because I have so much uh, visual artifacts uh, that is what has inspired me to write this current book which is the Kenneth Williams scrapbook which is yeah. um, a, a, a photo based 
book, um, which includes all these wonderful images and programs and leaflets and tickets and newspaper cuttings and you name it, it's in there. And um, and of course with it as well, there'll be um, some text as well to illustrate the illustrations, if I can say such a thing. Oh. And uh, there's forwards, it's going to be forwards by Sir Tim Rice, Giles Brandreth, Christopher Biggins uh, and Morris Bright. And um, I've got some people very kindly writing some other bits about their memories who knew him and met him that didn't go into the companion as well so oh that sounds fantastic Adam oh, I'm really 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 looking forward to that so it's um, an illustrative companion to the companion I call it wonderful <laughs> well, that, that sounds really fantastic and, and just as a last question what is your most prized um part of your Kenneth Williams collection what what's the thing that you are is most precious to you I think it's the very few letters that I have because oh. essentially that's the only thing that I have that has um, actually been written by him. Yes. Um, okay. Whereas everything else has been just things about him or taken of him. Um, yes. But that must yeah, be wonderful. Definitely the letters. Yes, there's something so intimate about that, isn't there, when it's somebody's actual handwriting and, yeah, that's wonderful. And that must be very precious to you. Absolutely, especially yeah. when you, especially when you've known for the letters as well, so. Uh. Mm. Yeah. Oh, well, th this was a really interesting discussion, Adam. It's been so lovely to talk to you about all this and, and just really interesting to learn more about Kenneth Williams. And I hope it will have inspired people to, you know, perhaps revisit um there's a lot of, of films of him and stuff on YouTube. And, of course, to look at um, Adam's fantastic book, The Kenneth Williams Companion. Um, <laughs> so thank you very much for listening, everybody. And I just wanted to remind you that um, all the books in our fantastic biography collection at Kensington Central Library are available for you to borrow. Um, you can phone us on 020 7361-3010. Um, to reserve a book or you can uh, visit our website www.rbkc.gov.uk slash libraries you can look at the catalogue and you can narrow it down to what's in the biography collection or simply come into one of our library branches um, and ask us and of course if you come into Kensington Central Library itself and ask for a book from the biography collection a member of staff will be very happy to go and get that for you so we look forward to seeing you soon and thank you very much again Adam and um, we'll see you, you next time thank you bye-bye bye-bye <laughs>